Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reach out to you with a very special message. This month marks the start of LARB's year-end matching grant drive, where all donations will be matched by an anonymous donor. When you support LARB, not only are you supporting the work that we do here on the LARB Radio Hour, but you're also supporting all of the writers and editors who are publishing criticism, original fiction, essays, and poetry, both on our online website and in our print magazine. Any donation to LARB between now and December 31st will go twice as far thanks to this matching donation. We hope you'll consider donating at lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash donate. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Blake Butler about his new memoir, Molly. Yeah, and for listeners, just so that you know, this book deals extremely honestly with suicide, with self-harm, depression, and a number of issues that, yeah, if you don't want to hear about any of those things, maybe skip this episode. Yes, but for, for those who are open to listening to this, I really enjoyed our conversation with Blake. You know, this is such an intense book. It's so honest. It's so searing. I almost didn't know quite where to start, but he was incredibly generous in terms of what he would talk about. And the book really is generous in taking such crushing, difficult circumstances and delving into them so thoroughly and with a lot of thoughtfulness and heart and um, honesty. So... Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty exceptional in those ways. And he was incredibly generous and told us even before we started the interview that nothing was off limits, that he was okay to talk about anything. And the book, yeah, it's pretty unflinching in the way that it looks at Molly as a person, as a partner, as a poet, and I think manages to also, you know, I think one of the things that I feel like I learned a long time ago is like, oh, a good writer is a person who is willing to be extremely vulnerable in ways that other people are not. And this is certainly an example of that. Yeah, for sure. And I also think, you know, someone who is willing to not have any sacred cows. And um, often when, when someone is gone, it's so much more comfortable to kind of leave them on the shelf in the most positive light and not dig any deeper. And especially when you've love someone so much, you don't want to question how they may have felt about you or their relationship to you. Just these things in relationships that, especially when they're no longer active, it's hard to uh, avoid being sentimental about people we, we miss and love so much. So I think Blake also does that here too, in a very commendable way. Yeah. Should we get to the interview? Let's do it. Today, we'll be speaking with editor and writer Blake Butler. Butler is the author of many books, including the novels Alice Knott, There Is No Year, and Sky Saw. He's one of the founding editors of HTML Giant, and his work has appeared in publications like The New York Times, Harper's, The Paris Review, Vice, and Book Forum. 
His latest book is a memoir called Molly, out now from Archway Editions. Molly is dedicated to the poet and writer Molly Brodak, who is also Blake's wife of three years. Molly committed suicide one spring afternoon near the house they shared outside of Atlanta. After her death, Molly, the person, actually comes into clearer view as the secrets and traumas she hid during her life begin to reveal themselves. The book is an extraordinarily honest account of her death, of their relationship, and of the way people manage to survive immense loss. Blake, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. Blake, I thought we could start just talking about what you wanted this book to do that maybe other books hadn't done for you or the circumstances of of writing this book, if it made you think more about like what a book is for as a place to maybe put feelings or put things that just would have nowhere else to go, like more of a repository than kind of something to create. I'm curious as someone who's written a lot, if the particular circumstances of this book meant that the book was going to be something different than others you'd written. Absolutely. I mean, I've mostly been a fiction writer. So when I've written fiction, I've always kind of blocked the world out while I was writing and didn't care. You know, my, I relied on the idea that if I wrote the object that it should be, it didn't matter what anyone thought of it. And it didn't, the whole professional side of publishing didn't, was an afterthought really. In this instance, well, I, I knew I had something to say and I didn't know what that was. From the very first weeks after Molly passed, I immediately started thinking about how I would write about what happened. But I had something to say because I was angry and I was upset, but I also didn't understand the story for myself either. So I think I began writing it to try to even like catalog what had happened, what I knew, the many threads that what I conceptually knew, the many different forms those things could be, because there was just so much information, you know, coming out both from what I learned about her after she passed from reading things I hadn't seen and also how that learning those things totally reconstrued our entire relationship from the beginning to the end. So it was kind of like, I know I want to say something. I know there's something here, but I don't know what it is. And I've got to set out to throw myself into that to whatever degree. And I, I think I wanted it to be a book from the beginning, but I also was writing from a position of where am I on a daily basis, which has a such a different feel from fiction. And it's certainly, even having written nonfiction before, this was just like being inside of the book while you're writing it. Yeah. You're also representing real people and Molly, you know, Molly struggles with writing about her own life, which she did in her book, Bandit. And I, also wonder what it was like to write about a person who you were both so close with and also who it turned out you didn't know everything about. And maybe you could also tell us just a little bit about Molly. Yeah, Molly, I knew Molly was a complicated person the very first day I met her. And I liked that about her and it drew me to her and I wanted to understand her and I wanted to figure out what about her attracted me. and. Well, she was way more mature than me for first thing. And she's been a career teacher. She had spent her life studying and kind of escaping into books and poetry as a kind of like survival technique. And I thought I understood that about her. And I thought I understood 
what the life she had lived had done to her. You know, she had been through a lot. Her father was a bank robber, spent most of his life in prison or her adult life. The trauma of discovering that in public sort of, you know, he's arrested. She sees him on TV. He's dubbed the Mario Brothers Bandit, which, you know, she's in middle school when this happens. So you can imagine that. And, you know, her family life is totally chaotic throughout on both sides. So I guess she was not so forthcoming about her past in certain ways and other times she would lay it out there. So I, I, she was a poet first and I was like, the story you're telling is incredible. You've got to write it down. That's when she ended up writing Bandit. But so that's a good example of like, I remember reading Bandit when she was alive and publishing it and being like, thank God she's telling these stories. Thanks God she's finally letting out some of this dark energy that's been clogging her from childhood. And now when I read the book, I think she's playing lots of different games here. It's not a straight narrative. The truth is still there. The story she tells about her family is real, but some of her present day, like she starts kind of mimicking her father, in my opinion. She starts having the double life. She starts kind of like living in secret. And so when I see her talking about her father now in Bandit, I, also, I see her also as talking about herself. And that helped me as someone who loved her and knew her struggle while she was alive and tried to reach her in ways I could, seeing that not go as, well, not as planned to be, you know, she kills herself in secret. And then I realize, oh, this person's in peril still, even more than I realized, because she's a dark, funny person, but she hid herself very well. To be real about it, like a lot of it was just like, here's what I know. Here's what factually happened when I'm writing my own version of it. It's like, this is what happened. And now like I can add different layers to that of, well, I have different understanding now and I can compare those versions. But I mean, it's an infinite sort of process. You know, you're, uh, every day I come in and I feel differently about things. So that was a big challenge, trying to find the voice that I could have a through line in a memoir that I could hand to someone instead of, you know, the early drafts of writing this book were just like pure chaos. So it was really a step-by-step, one foot in front of the other, and then just trying to be open to the possibilities of how we don't ever really know the whole truth of anything. You say that she had a double life, and it seems to me that there's one aspect of that, which is this kind of silent plotting of her own death, which you know she kept a secret to some degree. And then there's also a lot of behavior that she had during the time of your relationship that you uncover after she's died that must color how you see your relationship. But I would also assume, you know, the initial shock of someone having been remote enough from you to hide their kind of long plotted death is the ultimate double life in a way. It's a sensitive territory, but the kind of progression you have after she dies from first realizing that this has been something she's long been planning to do to then learning about all these other things that she was doing when you were together. Maybe you could just describe a little bit how that affected you step by step. That's a good question. Yeah, it's so complicated. I mean, like, Like I said, from the first day I met her, she was talking about her brain tumor that she had. And she was always really, she seemed really fraught and really upset about things, but was careful about what she would present and what she would hold back. 
And so knowing that about her and also like, she also has like a funny sense of gallows humor that we both shared. You know, we both, I think she was attracted to me for my like willingness to speak so bluntly about death and about terror and all these things. So I think she's simultaneously drawn to me as someone who could maybe understand her because I think she feels very misunderstood throughout her life. I know she does. And yet at the same time, she's pushing back on me because I'm also in letting me close. She's letting me into stuff she doesn't want anyone to see. You know, she's, we shared a therapist once I started going to therapy and, and I had said probably a month before she passed, I was like, if Molly decides to actually try to kill herself, which she talked about suicide in her poetry, it's everywhere. She dreams about it. But it's this thing, it's like, well, you're living with it and we're working together and you're talking enough about me and you're in therapy. But my therapist, you know, she's like, there's so much, even in therapy, she wasn't bringing up. So it's almost like she's not willing to trust anyone with who she really is. And that would manifest in so many different ways to me as her husband. You know, I'm aware she's got this kind of like divider between how she sees herself and how she wants to be seen, but she really wants praise and she wants to be seen, but she also knows that she's not being totally real. So when she would receive praise, it would almost be, ah, I'm fooling these idiots and their, their praise is invalid. So, and she would criticize me in that way too. Like you never notice anything, you never notice anything. And it's like, well, I'm not suspecting you of things. So I'm not trying to read through your journals, you know, it, her journals are laying around the house. And I realize right after her death, I go in and her journals are laying on the bed. And I, well, she's gone now. I'm going to open this to see what she was talking about. And she's been writing about her killing herself again from early childhood. Her entire, she's talking about suicide from age 12 to 39 when she dies. So, so it's like, what do I take seriously? How, you know, how can I intercede on that? while also taking her seriously as a rational adult who makes art and writes and thinks. And also being someone who is struggling with suicidal thoughts myself at the same time. I'm like, I say I'm going to kill myself. That doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but it's trying to tell someone sort of. So I don't know. It's kind of this weird shell game of like, I'm going to let myself expose and oh crap, I don't want you that close. So let me like either undercut you or make up an excuse. You know, it's like the lies build more lies. And that I think that's what eventually traps her in the end is she stacks so many lies that there's no outs. And I almost think she does it on purpose. That's a, see how my monologue on this is like, there's so many threads and you can just jump on each one. And I think that's part of the problem of writing about her without her here is no one will, she's the only one who could speak on this. And even she's an unreliable narrator. So it's tricky, but I also think it's necessary to try to talk about it, which is why I've written the book. Part of the book also confronts your own bad behavior throughout your relationship. And I wonder what that was like for you. I, I know that you went to therapy. That's part of the process. But what was it like to sort of write that all down for other people to read about? It's been really interesting. So when I started the book, I didn't really realize I was going to be writing about myself as much as I did. I thought, I'm angry at what happened to Molly. I'm angry at the societal factors and the social factors that I see contributing to her inability to connect to somewhere in reality. The first draft is much more about who Molly was, what she was trying to do, what happened to her in her struggle. And then my agent looked at the manuscript and said, tell the story of the rela the relationship is the story more than Molly. And I, I didn't even see myself in that way. I thought, well, I'm just the guy who happened to be there for this. 
So as I started writing more about my mental state, which was more a source of my mother's mental illness and my stress of dealing with what had been going on with my family, which Molly kept quite a distance from. She didn't like families. So I thought I was struggling and I thought Molly could see that and she could. She's the one that's pulled me aside and said, if you don't go to therapy, I don't know where our relationship is going because you're out of, you're hurting yourself, you know? So we add this narrative on top of the fact that I'm being lied to her throughout a relationship. So when I find that out, I'm like, no wonder I had no relief. You know, you usually rely on your loved one, your spouse to help you through situations like your mother dying. But I go back and look. And so logically, while that's happening in, while she's alive, I'm like, well, Molly, Molly had a terrible childhood. She doesn't like family. She doesn't want to see. I thought I had a great childhood and a great relationship with my mom. And I really loved my mom. So that was more fueled to the fire for her in one way, because she saw me, you know, my mom's dying near the end there. And I'm moving all this stuff from my childhood home into our house. And I, I could feel it. I could feel she saw the stuff from my childhood as evidence of the childhood she didn't have. And so it was a really strange and treacherous and lonely time. And I retreated from, from it by drinking and using drugs, which the drugs actually dro- brought Molly and I together because she'd been a drug user her whole life. But in secret, she knew I didn't really like drugs when, I, when we met. So I don't know. That's another one of those slippery slopes where we were together in that kind of like life is shit. Life is impossible. No one cares. And she reinforced that for me as the one that I thought was the antidote. So yeah, finding out, oh, she's been lying. She's been having a secret life. Wow. No wonder I was hearing demons talk. No one else was helping me as I felt at the time. So I realized, I guess, that there was more to learn about her and myself from looking at that influence on me. And it also, I'm the one that's alive now. I had to learn to value myself and think. Because when she died, I wanted to die too. I had to learn to figure out why I would want to live again, especially having realized that the person that I'd attached to as as kind of the ballast of my life basically punched me in the stomach and killed herself, you know? So in that way, the book becomes a kind of like, how do, what's life worth? How do I get off the floor? What, why would I get off the floor? And that became what I really grappled with the more I learned to accept what Molly's decision was. I had to find out what my decision for life would be or against life. You know, I did walk a line there. So Maybe you could take us to around the time, you know, where she died. If you feel like the circumstances, you know, there's these deep family wounds that are so hard to undo, but were there particular circumstances at that time that were exerting extra pressure? Was anything different? Was it, what do you feel was the inciting force for this specific time that she ended her life? What were things like for the two of you then? It's kind of like gradually and then all at once, sort of. Like the last year of our life, we were just stacking tragedies. You know, my mom who had Alzheimer's suddenly died. Her grandfather, who was really her only family member that she really had. I mean, he led her through life, essentially. He he replaced her, her father for her. He passed away suddenly. 
She'd been a career teacher and she'd been teaching at a small school in Atlanta, which was bought out by Kennesaw State, which was a larger school. And that completely changed her life. She went from loving her work and teaching at kind of a technical college where she really made an impression on her students to this. They were trying to get a division one football team. They bring in a whole her boss has never taught or had administrative experience. She clashes with her boss constantly, ends up losing her job as a result. She's on the Great American Baking Show for her baking, which she was doing. She was trying to transition out of academia and into running a small business. She goes on the Great British Baking Show, and that gets canceled after filming. But she basically put her career at risk for that because she was supposed to be teaching during the summer, went to London and did the shooting. And then it gets canceled because some, one of the judges has indecency charges against him. So they cut, they dropped the show. So it's like one after another, just like, you know, our chickens, we kept chickens in the yard. They were getting attacked. Like her favorite chicken gets killed. So it's like, wow, the world has seemed to be telling us, get out of here. You know, we both felt like, man, this is brutal. What are we doing? And she retreated into work and so did I. And those are the surface things I'm aware of. At the same time, she's having secret relationships more often and having really treacherous ones. And she starts doing more self-destructive behaviors that to me, I think are just like part of her personality. But now I'm like, wow, she's really screaming out here for someone to notice her self-abuse, but she's also pushing away anyone that would get close to be able to do that and belittling, you know, anytime I would be like, how are you, you know, try to get a conversation going, it would either be what I see now as lies or placation, or she'd blow up. Her vulnerability in in my living there and also feeling I'm not noticing these things that should trigger a, a confrontation, she just starts to despise me more and more. So it becomes a kind of like, okay, the world's falling in against me. So I'm going to start taking the world out first. And I'm going to throw myself at the feet of that and, and just like hate everything even more than I ever did. So it kind of collapses in there on the end. And as for the last days, it's like she decides and she buys the weapon and she has it for a few weeks. And she just describes waiting for the slide of time to move over her and for her to do it. She knows she's going to do it and she doesn't know when. And it's just like, wait for that mood, wait for that thing to hop on you where you can't see the tether that's holding you to reality anymore. And that's all it takes is a few minutes to walk off and put a gun to your head. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Blake Butler, author of Molly. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. First, we have this week's book recommendation. Andrew Chan on the line with us today. Andrew's latest book is called Why Mariah Carey Matters. And Andrew's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Andrew, what book are you going to recommend? I'm reading right now, I haven't actually finished it, but a friend pointed me to a book called Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse by Anna Heed Nersessian. She is a professor of literature at UCLA. I've never read her work before, but I, in addition to being a music critic, I also write about literature and poetry is really a focus of mine. And I've always loved Keats, but she's really bringing his poetry alive 
for me in a way that I never have experienced before. She's bringing some of the political undercurrents of the poems, which frankly, I had never picked up on. And she is also the kind of critic that I love and that I myself strive to be, which is one who reads closely, listens closely, and has an embodied experience with the artwork. So I really recommend this book. It's really exciting to read poetry criticism that feels full-bodied and full of blood and passion and excitement and emotion in the same way that Keats's poems are. Do you have a favorite Keats poem? I would have to say Ode on a Grecian Urn. That was a poem I memorized probably in high school. I don't have it committed to memory now, but yeah, I've never read an in-depth study of his poetry. And I wouldn't say that the Romantic poets are now my favorites. In fact, I do tend to gravitate to more austere <laughs> poets now. Louise Glick is someone who comes to mind as since she passed recently. But it's kind of invigorating to read these incredibly lush poems that kind of read to me like poetic analogs of Mariah Carey's music <laughs> in a way. Just excessive, lush almost too much, but they're anchored in what Anahid Nersessian herself says or calls the ungovernability of emotion. And of course, that's something that I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by how different art forms contain that ungovernable emotion. And I don't see why Keats and Mariah can't be in conversation with each other. That's a great recommendation. Andrew, can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Keats's Odes, A Lover's Discourse, Anahid Nersessian. Perfect. We've been speaking with Andrew Chan. His new book is called Why Mariah Carey Matters. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Blake Butler, author of Molly. Her reverence for work is repeated in this book over and over and over again. It really seems like sort of the anchor that she holds on to, as you said, when it starts to slip away, she really becomes unmoored. I wonder how you think about her work now and how you think about your own work, because it seems like that reverence isn't quite straightforward. It's not exactly good for her, nor is it really good for you, ultimately. But what do you think about it? I mean, work was what united us at first. We were both, all that matters is the writing, all that matters is the art. Art is a reason to live. The pursuit and the lifetime of making art is is something to live for. And that's not, you know, we both kind of didn't care about publishing. We both saw publishing as fraught and often not lining up with things we identified with or saw merit in. So I think for her in particular, work was a way of providing, of creating meaning and value in her life that she could depend on no matter what was with her. And we really bonded on that. We knew we didn't want to have kids. We wanted to spend all of our time making art and writing and living a life in the arts. And my respect for her work has only increased, honestly, since her death. I think she's a singular poet 
that was living sort of out of sync with time. She was ahead of her time. She puts more into her thoughts before she even begins writing than most people I've ever met. She's way more mature in that way. And I've learned from her in that way. I've learned to think even more deeply about time and continuity and and why I'm here, what I can do that doesn't depend on the market. And I have felt her in me, in my writing since finishing this memoir. During the memoir, it was a little different because it was kind of a conversational transaction at times between us. But I feel her seriousness and her respect for antiquity and for for the craft and for poetic word choices. You know, she would we sometimes bickered about writing because she was a poet at heart and I was a fiction writer at heart. And we both kind of would joke with each other about the downfalls of the other, but I, we both believed in craft and we both believed in something there that I think I even didn't get it until it's really sunken in about her. I think I just think that she, because of the the essence of her situation with, you know, her high school y- years where she's in the library all the time and she's re- people are out partying, she's reading poetry and studying poetry and, and wants to be a poet. I don't know. It's just, I think part of the reason I, I realized I wanted to live is because I wanted to continue that for both of us. And I really still do. I believe in that more than ever, you know, like this book, while the hardest thing I've ever written and completely complicated from a sharing it and letting these secrets out perspective. I also think it's just like, I can't imagine doing anything else. I sometimes beat myself up about why did I fall down this rabbit hole of doing a a craft that feels negligent in the current world, like writing feels like it's losing its power over other media. But I also think that's a call to action for me and the time to step up and say, I'm here for that reason. So long-winded answer, but I, I really just believe that I see what she saw in work, and I think she took it to the degree that it became intolerable in in the light of everything else. But there's something there that has formed a a kind of like path forward, and I'm grateful for that. And I I'm glad it's still possible. You know, one of her projects that she decided to take on for a while was this like excavation, digging holes. She got really interested in geology and deep time, and of course, you know, from a more like psychoanalytic point of view that seems like maybe subconsciously there was something about wanting to go inside deep, deep down to the beginning and kind of get at all those things that are so impossible to say. And there's a line that you have in the beginning of the book where you're describing like the sequence of learning that she had died, where you say that it's like a doormat laid on blood. And I think that has to do with language. It strikes me that as two people who are writers trying to narrate things that have, trying to narrate maybe places where language can't go, seems like, you know, that's a lot of times that's why people stay sick is because there's no words for certain traumas, you know, and trying to explain them with the language that we have doesn't always get at it. So especially when we're thinking about trauma and writing together, and as someone who's maybe written less conventional books, I wonder what you make of any of that. Yeah, it's really loaded. The whole image comes back for her constantly. And, you know, I think about the tumor she had and the surgery she had to remove that tumor and how she puts a hole in her head to kill herself aiming at that tumor And even as someone as 
her mom was a therapist. She grew up in therapy. She'd been going to therapy throughout her life, tried different medications. On one side, as like coherent psychoanalytically about herself as she could seem, but then there's this like space within her that she still never quite is able to hold full. And I think that's why it feels like a whole. And I think it's related I mean, it's again to her father, you know, it's like, does my father love, she asked me near the end of her life, do you think my father loves me? And this guy's a sociopath. He's proven over and again that he doesn't really care about anything. And so the rest of her family had given up on him, you know, and she, I think I mentioned seeing parallels between the two of them. And I really think she wanted to, she didn't want to live in a world where he was just some criminal sociopath that didn't love anybody and went to the grave. You know, she didn't want because she saw enough of him and her that it became a question of survival for her to understand that. And one of the things she does near the end too, is she gets a grant and goes to Poland to go back to her, where her father was born, which was in a concentration camp in Poland. That's now no longer there. She, and she goes there and she's drawn back to that for a reason. And, and I don't think it's to be taken lightly that it, her grandmother carries her father in a concentration camp, hiding the baby from the soldiers who she's afraid will force her to abort it. This is written about in her memoir, Bandit. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, it, there's some of that there. But but I also think it's such a massive trauma and it permeates her entire family tree that, and then in being born into that and not given any I say her mother's a, a therapist, but also like a highly problematic one in certain ways. So she's both opening herself to these vulnerabilities and these experiences that that make her who she is, and also thrown into the chaos of them at the same time with kind of out a tether or or anything other than like the normal life that she has that is also a lie. So she's more aware of herself and others than than not anyone I have ever met at times. And then at other times, she's this complete, I mean, there's so many different words come to mind. Wraith, Frankenstein, zombie, child. I don't know. I feel so much for her. I wish I could, I wish I could intercede and kind of not have that happen to people. And I, I, that's another reason that we hide these things away. We hide away these family traumas. She's the first person in her family to talk about any of this stuff in her book. And, and that's scary too. So in coupling this with the prior question about what we understood about each other, it's like, I know Molly wanted me to write this book. And I know Molly didn't want these things to be buried further. You know, the only way that we can really serve one another in these kind of terrains is to speak and give others grounds to speak. And so it continues to reveal itself. But I also think the more space and time that it that it's given and the more people are feel free to do it, the whole is lifted. It's a rising tide, you know. There are parts in this book where you communicate with both your dead mother and with Molly after their deaths. You almost channel a, a different dimension where you, you find them. You find other sort of beings there too. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you? And were you worried sort of writing it down? Were you worried about what people would think when they read that? I don't think I was worried. I mean, so I started hearing demons like the first night I felt I heard demons. Molly's still alive, but it's, you know, that had been I'm selling my family's house during that time. And I had kind of just come that night from seeing the estate sale where all of the stuff that had been kind of crammed in this house 
that my parents had lived in throughout my entire lifetime. And it's like an hour north of where I was living. So I'd come home from that, which was kind of like this already super loaded. You know, you're walking around basically a museum of your childhood of stuff you'd forgotten about, all of it with price tags on it. And I come home and Molly was gone during that time. And now I know that that night she was doing, well, it's funny, I hesitate to even say it because it's in the book, but she's having an affair that night. And she, I don't know that, but something in me seems to, because I get confronted with what really, even to this day, feels like a window opened in time where it began with opening the door to my mother's voice. I had come from the home and I really was trying to write this book about her, well, not about her, but almost, I felt like I was collaborating with her, kind of similar to what I was speaking about earlier with Molly, but it was this, you know, my mom was what, who made me love reading and who really inspired my creativity. So I opened myself to this kind of, ah, voices outside of my cognition can collaborate with me. And, you know, I've always kind of thought of writing as a bit of channeling, but this was, you know, where it's like, ah, I don't know why I'm typing what I'm typing, but this was like, type this, then you think about what to say back and type back. And then I'll do that too. And it was very much this like, whoa, and it scared me. So having had that experience, having realized what happened that night that kind of opened that channel, because I was like, was I just stoned? You know, I was using, I was smoking weed and other stuff that time, but I, I was using a lot of different stuff during that time and didn't have that experience. So I, I think maybe it's easily written off as psychotropic, but something's so intense about that night and about other nights, you know, like, after Molly died and I was staying with some friends in recovery, it would just come over me. And it was also, you know, at first it started with in my head where I was, you know, Molly would come, I would hear what felt like Molly's voice in my head and she would be trying to communicate with me. And all I could think about was how do I remember this? How do I archive this so I can know what she's saying? And, and that voice kept saying, forget about writing it down. I'm trying to actually tell you something about creation and existence. And so it honestly almost like took training to be like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter whether I remember these specific things you're saying. It's almost like an immersion. But that came with fraughtness too, because opening that door in your head, you know, that's when I really started going to deeper limits of like, do I want to, there's the edge of reality. Do I want to throw myself beyond that? And I found, no, I didn't. I wanted, for some reason, I was still tethered enough to reality to be like, there must be something in here for me to take away other than just this chaotic royal. So I learned to type better and listen better back to her. And some of it may be affectation, but it's coming from a borderline that's really, I don't see the point of like saying it's real or not, because reality is so thin anyway to me that, and that window has also sort of like changed. I don't, I don't feel overcome by those voices to that degree, but I see it in different ways now in the present. And it's being more integrated into my working consciousness in a way that it can be less this like, ah, I'm floating in chaos to, ah, I understand what chaos did to me right there. How do I say something about it? So yeah, it's just like any other craft. It's <laughs> one you grow and live with and learn to see its influence on you differently over time. I wonder how your memory of, you know, the early times with Molly, the happier times, times when you didn't like see this so much in the rear view are shaped by this, by her suicide or other things that you've uncovered since she's died. Because I know that that you even write that the kind of suicide becomes such a defining 
aspect of someone's life. I mean, everyone's death does become a defining aspect of their life, but it's so hard. And I speak from personal experience of remembering someone separate from that, not seeing that kind of woven into everything, not seeing everything colliding towards that point, especially, you know, if you're going back through something in writing and making some kind of narrative. And I wonder if that was a challenge in this book, wanting to also communicate the great love that was there, the happiness that also existed, all those things. It's a really interesting question. Yeah, it's it's a really big challenge because I knew I wanted to write about this while it was still alive in me, while it was still something I woke up thinking about and went to bed thinking about. You know, it's been three years, three and a half years since she died. So I could write that book in 10 years and maybe have a more round view where the suicide's not so front loaded. And yet the suicide and the loss of her, the tragedy of losing who she was to this bizarre situation and context and her choice to do that. It's almost like I couldn't write without confronting it first. So, And that was something the book taught me. I I didn't start with the death when I wrote the first draft of this book. The book begins in print with the day that that she did it and how I found that out. That used to be in the middle of the book because first I wanted to tell about her and the beauty of her life and her work and and how she did shine through and find ways to live for a while. But, you know, when we sent that book out the first time, I got this weird feeling of like, you know, it began, ah, the first day I met Molly, I picked her up from jail. It's like, well, it's almost a stigma thing. It's like, why is she interesting to someone that doesn't know her? It wasn't. No one took the book until I moved the suicide to the front of the book. And then it got picked up by the very next publisher. So it's like, wow, that's really, that's really strange. But I also see where the kind of heat of the interest lies, which makes it easier to figure out how to tell her story for someone else instead of for myself, if that makes sense. I mean, like, but it's complicated because there are a lot of people who know her. So it's like, Promoting this book just feels bizarre in the first place on that level, but I think reckoning with why she died is such an important part of the reason to present this story to an audience that that it does kind of take the reins away from the sweeter times, the love I had for her. And it, and it does make it feel like that's few and far between in the book, you know? And it was, you know, like I said, in seeing our entire relationship recolored by the choice of her death and what came out of learning about it afterwards, it was like, it all was under review from the very first day. Did she love me? Why did she choose me? Why did she treat me the way she did throughout our relationship and really kind of like hurt me, brainwash me, all these things? Why did she do that? So it was really kind of a, the death is becomes the fulcrum of understanding it all. And I hope that won't be the, the case as you know in in some ways this book allows me to escape that because it's like there's all the here's everything i know i don't know anything else you know but without having said any of that it just forms this kind of wall where you're like what happened why did she die and i don't want that i refuse to let that be the state she goes out in so i think it's a tragedy and i think it's a recurrent tragedy and i think it's far more wide prevalent than we believe and people are going through shit that they don't realize and that their loved ones don't realize. And so this is my moment to say, I'm holding a mark in time and I'm going to process this to the full extent of my capabilities because it needs to be a stumbling block. It needs to be something where we say, 
this isn't just the product of one person's bad decision. This is how life is for some people, and some people don't have a way out. I read something this morning about grief that, you know, noted that you're, we're always asked about it in terms of a process, which implies that it has some end, or it has some conclusion, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And of course, it doesn't quite work that way. I wonder how you have, I guess, just where you are now. And I suppose it's, it's probably not linear, but what does it feel like? You know, what is your relationship to grief at the moment? It changes on a, on a slower basis than it had. You know, I kind of stopped writing there for a while. Uh, and I was the kind of person that wrote every day. The three years that I worked on this book, I didn't really write any fiction. I just like my brain felt scrambled and I couldn't find a reason to write stories anymore. I couldn't find a reason to write fiction anymore with this in my face. And coming to the desk was really painful for me throughout that. And I really started to wonder, why do I do this? You know, time is short. Why don't I, do I want to do this? What do I have to say? And in finishing this book, knowing that I had to say that at least, well, I'm grateful to not be writing the book anymore. I can say that. It did a number on me mentally. And I'm only now that I've like closed the door on that and I can't go back and change those sentences and I can't add the layers of things I newly think about it. You know, uh, it's funny how a book has that life processes by the time it's anyone else is reading it, you've almost moved on so much that it doesn't have the same cachet to you. But so I'm grateful to be, you know, I've been writing a lot of, I've kind of taught myself to write again by writing through the chaos, by writing stuff that I just did to get it out. And now I'm starting to see where my place is for that again, you know, and what I, where my interest lies. And I've found it almost redoubled, as I was saying in the, in my previous answer about feeling this passion for what's left unspoken and what goes missing in the kind of marketplace that drives so much of writing. I see it as a new challenge. I think I've always liked writing for the puzzle making and the challenge making of it and the kind of unbounded range that you have in being able to write any word down next. And so that's the mystery, part of the mystery of life for me. And I do want to chase that some more. It's not meaningless because the person I was doing that side by side gave up. In fact, it makes me want to be like, I'm sorry we lost you, but I'm going to keep going and, and like speak to me if you can, because I'm listening for you. And that's been happening. And I've grown as an artist as a result. And sticking your head in the furnace will burn you, but you're going to learn something. And you might be able to talk to others who have to stick their head in the furnace. So that's I like not knowing what the road ahead is, but in a different way this time of I'm no longer teetering at the edge of death and I'm more teetering at the edge of my own ambition. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for Molly. I wish I hadn't had to grow up by going what I went through as a result of her death, but I'm grateful for her wisdom, her vision, and her intolerance to the despicable that we can speak about and her ownership of being part of the despicableness because we're all human. I take it as a challenge to keep going and I love a challenge. Well, maybe that's a, a good place to stop. Yeah. that's how <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We got to a good note. So that's in there. Um, thank you, Blake, so much for speaking with us. Thank you both so much. Those questions were so great on all, all levels. That was Blake Butler. His new book is called Molly. 
Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.